This episode was recorded on the 28th of July 2021 at home in Wicklow. This episode is all about stars in one way or another and looking at stars and how stars are made. Now, what do I mean? Because I'm not renowned for my grasp of astrophysics or astronomy but the main focus of this podcast is the movie or the story of a star is born and the movies that have told their various versions of that story and looking at the story in the context of sexism I suppose and of Hollywood myth making and of trauma and a male response the worst male response to trauma and there's a little epilogue at the end of the episode which does actually move into the area of actual astronomy and star gazing so if I am a stargazer or have been since I was a child looking at actors on the screen. And If A Star Is Born is about a character who is starstruck and wants to become an actress and then become a star, and also about the falling star of uh, an actor or performer at the end of their career. Um, That's the connection. That's the connection. That somehow we are always attracted to bright, shiny things. We look up at them, we admire them, we project our fantasies onto them. They speak to the innately curious in us. They light a flame of wonder in us. And it's very sad when that light is put out in us or in them. And that is really the connective tissue of this episode. And I will mention that when I discuss the writers, the various writers who have been attached to the different versions of A Star is Born, I forgot to mention a very significant writer who was part of the screenwriting team for the earlier iterations of it. And that is none other than Dorothy Parker. Dorothy Parker whose many quotes and quips I was looking at before the episode and one that came up I thought it might have been a gardening quip which was unusual for her because it says you can take a horticulture but you can't make her think (laughs) I'll leave you with that one I'll leave you to dwell on that and work it out for yourself the word was horticulture okay talk to you soon enjoy the episode take care hi i'm dara clear and you're listening to the clear out welcome to it welcome back if you've been here before um and yeah as i say welcome if it's your your first time to uh to pay a little visit to drop off your ears and attach your brain and become passive in the receiving of my 
my strange and weird propaganda of the soul. Yes, and if you're a if you're an Irish listener dwelling in this lovely island, how are you getting on? Did you did you negotiate that that ferocious burst of heat that we were enduring there for oh it was a it was a solid week. <laughs> A solid week of hotness, of heat, debilitating, oppressive, wonderful, luxurious heat, scalding the head off us, burning, burning through the grass, making the ground hard instead of soggy. Well, the moment has passed and the rain has returned. Quite a lot of rain yesterday. Quite a lot of rain. A good soaking. A good soaking was given given to the parched earth. And very welcome, I think it was. Yeah. And, yeah, I'm not sure if you're catching that. Can you hear that? It's pounding down at the moment. The rat-a-tat-tat on the roof. Isn't it lovely to be indoors when it's raining? fantastic so there you go we'll see now we'll see how long this uh this wet spell goes on for i'm staying out of the river when the rain comes it it it, it drops the temperature of the river and it raises the level of the river and makes it a little bit unwieldy the old current can get quite hard to negotiate but uh, i plan i plan to take a trip to the sea I find the, the sea a bit more manageable when the rain is around. So uh, that might be on today's afternoon agenda. We'll see. We'll see what I can manage. So what have I been doing? And what have you got to look forward to or to dread in the uh, the next 50 minutes or so? I've been watching movies and I'm going to try and draw a line from movies to to trauma <laughs> as ever <laughs> as ever i want to go and have a wallow a wallow in human misery and i'm really interested in inescapable trauma now i'm going to put inescapable in inverted commas because I suppose fundamentally I believe we can, we can transcend, we can move beyond. But there are times in our lives when somehow those scars, those wounds, that trauma can just somehow not let us go and pull us back to the same spots again and again and again. And I'm really interested in how we find a way to negotiate that or escape it or you know as i said moments ago that that word transcend comes to mind anyway we'll um i'll get there at some point however the the journey to there is going to start with movies and specifically one movie that has spawned five different versions i'm going to argue and that movie is a star is born. So, the most recent version was from a couple of years ago. Was it 2018 or 2019? 2018, I'm going to say. 
and that featured Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga and I really enjoyed it I, I thought it was fantastic um, I'm not sure if there was something in their story that triggered a bit of nostalgia or stirred some deep um, some deep memories and <laughs> I'm hesitating to use the word love but I was thinking of my wife you know um, you know because my wife's a singer and a songwriter and a great singer and songwriter and musician and I don't know in a way I suppose I was I was relating to this, that that love story in A Star Is Born and I just found it so credible and never mind the part of Bradley Cooper's character being this massively famous and successful rock star i was really just focusing on their their connection and the the what i felt was you know an amazing chemistry uh between them that jumped off the screen and this palpable warmth and attraction and desire and fascination and this you know that their 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 headlong plummet into chaotic love um yeah i i just found it i i i found it brilliant i found it totally believable and very attractive um i will come back to that at some point uh, in this discussion but i was talking about the film with my my cousin who's recently moved in next door at hashtag #blessed and he was saying he didn't now he didn't like the the ending ruined it for him he just couldn't you know shake his distaste or discomfort or his sort of you know that the shock of you know the the story that the, the writing and how he felt it failed and it just was a, a jolt too much at the end and he just didn't really know well, what the hell was this story about and particularly i think focusing on her journey lady gaga the lady gaga character's journey um artistically and what that was meant to mean and where she ended up um and of course the 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 tragedy of bradley cooper's character who uh, at that point in the story had become her husband but couldn't escape his own demons and took his own life very uh you know very yeah tragically and dramatically at the end of the movie um which i'll come back to i'll come back to later and yeah needless to say <laughs> It's a bit late now to say spoiler alert if you haven't seen the movie, um, but you should. You should see it. However, let's travel back in time. So, the original movie, A Star Is Born, came out in 1937. And it was a cherished project of the Hollywood producer David O. Selznick. And it was a Selznick International Pictures movie. And it was an incredibly self-referential Hollywood story. And that's what he wanted to put on the screen. He wanted a real, true Hollywood story behind the scenes. Like, what's it like? What really happens to our Hollywood stars and starlets? How do they get there? What does it cost along the way? Now, as it happens, that William Wellman-directed movie had an earlier incarnation a version of the same kind of story was made in 1932 
uh, in a movie called What Price Hollywood? And essentially the story is, uh, it's, it's that of a young aspiring actress who meets an older male actor, Hollywood figure, whose career is on the wane and who is an alcoholic. And they fall in love and she is the cherished protege and love object of the older successful male star and he helps facilitate the young starlet's rise but as her career ascends and she becomes beloved the you know the darling of hollywood his star is on the wane and the 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 contrast i suppose watching his fall leads to the to the to the end of his life and the the choice to end his life and in the case of in the case of what price hollywood he is deep in despair and finds a gun in a drawer and shoots himself in the chest and in the subsequent version a mere five years later um that character so played in the 1937 version the 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 character is played by frederick march who i knew i suppose as a kid from movies like uh dr jekyll and mr hyde and a favorite of mine of the as a kid which is now gosh i hope i'm remembering the name i want to say inherit the wind but is that right it's the one with spencer tracy as a as a you know as a lawyer defense attorney defending a black man um and frederick march is the prosecuting attorney and there's real racist overtones and it becomes a it becomes a sort of um i suppose it becomes a debate about evolution and challenges these racist presumptions of intellectual and evolutionary inferiority in black people i'm going to kill myself if i got that name wrong um i might have to go back and check that but anyway that frederick march was you know in that as well and i really i I only kind of knew him really as this kind of older actor um regardless of the the jekyll and hyde movie but in this, in the 1937 version of A Star is Born, there's almost something vaguely Gene Kelly-ish about him physically. And he's a lot younger and he's quite charming. And his depiction of alcoholism is, is not that dark. And he meets the up-and-coming starlet, very nicely played by Janet Gaynor. And she's had no success. She's moved to Hollywood at the ushering of her grandmother. So... She was, you know, growing up in, I think it's meant to be North Dakota and rural North Dakota and starstruck, loves the movies, but is mocked by her family and a a scathingly uh, dismissive aunt in particular. But her grandmother pulls her aside and basically says, you know, go for it. And, you know, we wouldn't have come out here and crossed, you know, terrible terrain and suffered through freezing cold winters and you know blistering hot summers and established ourselves here if, if we hadn't chased our dream and she hands over her savings and says you you go to hollywood and 
make sure you know you do it and don't let anybody stop you but cautions her in a very in a very kind of greek tragedy sort of way um cautions her that her success will come at a great price and that she has to steel herself that she's going to almost she's almost saying you're going to lose your heart that's what the cost will be so you're going to gain greatness and success and stardom and you will achieve that but it will cost you your heart it's going to be a very painful price and that's echoed later in the movie by the studio executive who signs her a sort of a paternal Adolf Menju um, as the somewhat jaded and wary studio executive but he takes her on and effectively gives her the same warning but anyway Frederick March meets her so the the you know the alcoholics super successful star he meets Janet Gaynor's character and she's a waitress she's a waitress at a fancy Hollywood party and he turns up and he spots her and finds her totally beguiling and he follows her into the kitchen where she's stacking plates and you know it's what they call a meat cute uh, in rom-coms nowadays but he's utterly charming and funny and proceeds to deliberately smash all the plates and whisk her away uh, you know to, to to escape from the trouble that's sure to follow uh, she's very funny in that scene though Janet Gaynor again I'm not very familiar with her I hadn't been very familiar with her you know before watching the movie she's physically vaguely I mean when I say vaguely I mean she's a touch Clara Bow a little bit Betty Davis got the she's got the big eyes and the kind of the small face um yeah almost gosh for some reason uh the cartoon character betty boop just come in came into my head as well just that little face and holding herself very small but the big big eyes and she has this very funny sequence at that party where she's like this is my chance to show my skills and is effectively (laughs) effectively pitching uh, impersonations of famous Hollywood actresses at the guests as she offers them hors d'oeuvres so she does I think it's a Mae West a Greta Garbo and a Catherine Hepburn impression in you know trying the different modes of delivery uh, for subsequent guests and they all just go oh my goodness <laughs> this girl is a loo ball um, but anyway the you know the story is the same she achieves success and frederick march's character becomes the failed actor and he attempts to to dry out and live the life of a contented house husband and ultimately he is taunted viciously by the studio publicity uh, you know, press officer guy uh, played by Lionel Stander. Lionel Stander, who you might remember from the seventies, uh, <laughs> the seventies TV show Heart to Heart. He was Max, the sort of chauffeur. Um, you know, I mean, I, I want to say manservant. <laughs> you know, the, the 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 guy who looks after the domestic needs of the glamorous. Uh, 
Stephanie Powers and Robert Wagner. And he had that hilarious intro at the start of the episode. I'm Max, and this is Freeway the Dog, and there's there's Mrs. H. She's gorgeous. But um, in the original Star is Born, he plays the press agent, and he meets the recovering alcoholic superstar, Norman Maine, in uh, the bar, and just basically sticks it to him, and taunts him and mocks him for basically living on his wife's earnings you know your wife will earn for you now and you know you have nothing to worry about you're washed up and nobody cares about you and they have a fight and frederick march ends up on the floor of the bar and people just perceive him to be in the middle of another alcoholic um you know rampage but of course he's actually sober at the time but the humiliation sends him directly back to the bar where he orders a scotch and it really is the tipping point that leads to the end and yeah basically at the end of the movie he overhears the studio executive consoling his wife the young superly super successful actress now and saying basically saying look he's washed up and he has been for ages and we'll just kind of mind him and manage him from now on and you've got to focus on your own career and the overhearing of this it's the final the final nail in the coffin and he puts on a front for his his wife and says look i'm grand i'll be fine now i'm going to take up fitness and i'm going to start swimming every day and they're of course living in you know beautiful californian coastal setting and off he goes and takes himself into the water never to return and it does it packs a punch you know that 1937 movie it packs a punch and it's it it is it it's it's convincing and it's it's terribly sad and the the you know the 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 end of the movie has a recovering wife facing the press and she comes to the the radio mic as it was in 1937 and it's this kind of you know it, it's her way of offering tribute to her husband where she comes to the mic and instead of announcing herself by her studio given stage name Vicky Lester given to her because her own name her actual name Esther Blodgett <laughs> was so horrendous they're like no way that's that's, that's not going to wash but instead of coming to the microphone as Mrs. as you know Miss Vicky Lester of star you know, star of the screen she simply says hello this is Mrs. Norman Maine and surrenders her female agency to the memory of her husband and that's how the movie ends being cheered and applauded by all the fans and it is the same ending given to the 1954 remake which I've also just recently watched and that is the one that is a musical version Starring Judy Garland as Esther Blodgett, later Vicky Lester, and James Mason as Norman Maine. And it's a very faithful remake of the 1937 version, which is not a musical. So this one sticks in the musical numbers so it can showcase Judy Garland's skills, her particular, um, I suppose, her like that's her wheelhouse that's her sweet spot the singing and dancing you know she was famously a, a vaudevillian um so an all-round stage performer and 
that movie, the 1954 version, is directed by George Cukor, who also directed the 1932 What Price Hollywood. He didn't want to direct, he was asked to by Selznick to direct the 1937 version and said no, it was too close to What Price Hollywood. But I guess by the time 1954 came around, he thought, okay, I'll give it a crack. And it's a musical as well. Although in my research, I found out he didn't direct the extended musical number uh, in the middle of the movie, which is a movie within a movie and showcases the Judy Garland character's amazing range uh, of singing and dancing talent. For me, it went on way too long. And I will uh, I will hold forth on my own feelings about Judy Garland um, in a little while. But again, the movie is, uh, as I said earlier, very self-referential. Now, I was referring to the 1937 version then, but the 1954 one is as well. And both movies feature these, they both feature a scene where Vicky Lester, the heroine, is receiving the Academy Award, the Oscar for Best Actress, and her speech, uh, she's giving a very humble, sweet speech, and the speech is interrupted by her husband arriving late to the ceremony, totally drunk, storming up on stage, addressing the audience, and then accidentally slapping his wife in the face as he's, you know, gesticulating about the, you know gesticulating with great indignity about how his star has fallen and how he needs a job and he wants to work and being kind of scathingly sort of sarcastic and bitter about his lot and yeah both Frederick March and James Mason James Mason James Mason uh, James Mason they do it very well now I said earlier, Frederick March's depiction of alcoholism and being an addict and alcoholic, it's, he plays it, he plays it quite small, I think, I would argue. And quite, yeah, it's kind of like low key, still very believable and very human. But he retains a certain level of control. Now, James Mason, I thought was kind of a revelation watching him. He, his is sort of the, the, the opening of the movie and the, the, the 1954 remake. There's a big sort of Hollywood gala event, live audience, and everyone's kind of going, where is he? He's late. He turns up drunk and is just flailing about the place and, you know, trying to sort of seduce female dancers and mix it up and carry on and at one scene, at one moment in that opening sequence, pushes the publicity guy through a mirror. And that sets up later the nastiness uh, of the publicity guy getting stuck into him when he's at his lowest ebb, um, played by Jack Carson in the 54 version as you know, quite a large man and his background is more comedy, but he just plays him very straight and nasty Again, that classic cynical Hollywood publicity guy managing the stories as they did back in the day with the contracted, uh, the contracted Hollywood players. They're 
Their image was managed ruthlessly by the studios to maintain their brand and, you know, tied in with the roles they played in their movies. And that's what we're seeing. That's the kind of the behind the scenes look we get in these movies uh, of how exacerbating, uh, sorry, exasperating, how exasperating uh, a person like the Norman Maine character could be, like a drunk, out of control you know, wreaking havoc around the Hollywood clubs and just constantly having to be managed by the studios. And of course, as soon as he be, starts becoming a liability, as soon as he's no longer a valuable commodity, as soon as he's no longer delivering on the screen, in both of those movies, his contract gets terminated and they attach their... They attach their wagon to the, 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 the rising power of the young starlet, the very sort of sincere, earnest and talented actress that is the character, Esther Blodgett. And so, yeah, it's it's not quite a changing of the guard, of course, because the male path was different to the female path. And and that's that's something that's really interesting in the movies the two the 37 and the 54 version because the the sexism is writ large the the way that the esther blodgett character is objectified is absolutely unambiguous and the with the 30 with the 1937 version the way frederick march plays it you feel that there's a you know, there's a genuine and charming sort of attraction and it's quite gentle. And he really is sincerely, albeit drunkenly, sort of doing his best to open that door, open that studio door for this young actress he's just met at the cocktail party and help her along the way. Now, in the 54 version, James Mason, because of that amazing intro, he's he really portrays the the dark inner demon of alcoholism very convincingly and there's a wildness and a a darkness and an anger in his eyes when he sort of just reveals that at certain moments in that opening sequence so on one hand he's kind of funny and playful and very sort of entertaining and you can see how at a safe remove you kind of go along with it and he's sort of a benign, jolly, playful drunk. But then there's just this, he, he brilliantly brings that edge, that knife of nastiness that alcoholics, in, and in my own experience of, you know, spending time with different people in my life who have, you know, who have been blighted with that affliction let's call it I don't want to be too grandiose about it but there's there's obviously a seamy ugly underside that can that can sort of quell your impulse for sympathy and care and concern and I've been on the receiving end of it so there's that kind of that as I say that kind of that knife that knife of nastiness that is produced when that inner demon that dark demon that can fuel the addict that can fuel the desire to be immersed and eradicated by alcohol it comes out and james mason he just captures it so well just moments just flashes 
and it is one of those moments there's a sort of a a wildly chaotic thrust in the the backstage dressing room where he's been interviewed and he pushes that publicity guy into the mirror and it's kind of brilliant now if i had to pick one of the movies over the other i'd probably go for the 1937 version the 1954 version is a bit too long and i have to say i'm not a huge fan of judy garland now when she was filming that uh when she was filming the movie i don't think she was in great shape i believe she was under the influence of a lot of her own addictions um drink and prescription drugs i think and was having a lot of issues with managing her her image managing her weight her body and um you know struggling with her own neuroses and illnesses um imagined both imagined and real illnesses so that in itself kind of paralleled or echoes the point i was trying to make earlier about the the sexism and the objectification of of that character the esther blodgett character and how she's brought into the studio system and how they really brutally critique her appearance her face and how in both movies there's there are extended sequences of how the makeup department and wardrobe try to mm, correct her appearance and modify her face not cosmetically with plastic surgery but with makeup and those sequences are both humorous and quite cruel in how she is objectified and through it all though even though she triumphs as an artist the 37 and 54 versions they they do keep her in her assigned role of you know the good little woman and how she is you know how she's been conditioned to comply conditioned to behave conditioned to fulfill that subservient role fundamentally and even though she's enjoying success on screen can you hear that rain yeah i can see i can see the monitor is picking that up (laughs) the rain is back um but yeah the the role assigned to Judy Garland, to Janet Gaynor, assigned to the character, I should say, that they each play in those movies. Ultimately, she reverts to being wan, demure, small, uh, living in the service of supporting the husband which is of course made more emphatic by the fact that the husband character is crippled with his own demons and with alcoholism and the the story of both follows the same track and at the end of the 54 version again you have the James Mason character having bottomed out after being in the kind of sanitarium (laughs) sanatorium sanitarium drying out being at the bar having that horrible fight with the 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 publicity guy and again jack carson plays it really with a real nasty vindictive streak delighted to stick the knife in 
to the, the the broken man, which triggers James Mason's final blowout. And ultimately, he's at home recovering, where again, he overhears the studio head uh, talking to, in this case, Judy Garland. And yeah, just laying out the the irrecoverability, the irreparability of James Mason's career, the James Mason character, Norman Maine's career. And after that, Norman Maine, James Mason, emerges from his bedroom in his dressing towel, dressing towel, dressing gown, and puts on this great show of, I'm a changed man, I'm going to swim morning and night, and all I need from you, my darling, is, you know, go into that kitchen, <laughs> go into the kitchen, my little girl, my little lady, my good little wife, and make me some nice soup, and sing, I want to hear you sing. And Judy, off she goes, dutifully, to the kitchen to sing her little heart out while Norman traipses down to the sea the beautiful sunlit sea and off he disappears into the waves and again it does pack a punch it does pack a punch um and I'll come back to that I'll come back to this you know I'll touch on the the, the suicide aspect of the character journey uh, in a little while but let me pause briefly to go back to Judy Garland and look, I guess you're a fan or you're not. Now, I like Wizard. I like The Wizard of Oz. I also very much like Meet Me in St. Louis, uh, two young Judy Garland performances. Meet Me in St. Louis, I think, is actually brilliant. Uh, the, the Vincent Minnelli musical and... I would argue that Meet Me in St. Louis, quite apart from being a great musical, this sort of um, belly poc, turn of the century, uh, you know, drama, comedy, musical, set down in, um, is it set in St. Louis? <laughs> Somewhere down there. And I am going to argue, and I have argued to other film friends, uh, film buff friends, that... I would argue it's the template for the sitcom. It's the template for it's a, it's, a, it's an amazing template for the family sitcom and the dynamics of a family, the dynamics between the husband and wife, the father and mother, the dynamics with the older family members, the dynamics between the siblings, their living and dying by the drama of each day the careers, the the romances. And you watch Meet Me in St. Louis and, you know, tell me I'm wrong. It really has so many beautiful aspects and, you know, stories within it that I think we've seen replayed a million times in sitcoms right through, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s and ongoing and fundamentally based on a very conservative uh, a very <laughs> a very conservative and desirable idea of a loving fundamentally functional family that withstand the ups and downs of everday life and ups you know survive the tribulations that life throws at them and yeah Judy Garland is she she's she's lovely in that and of course does such a, a memorable rendition of have yourself a merry little christmas one of my all-time favorites but Judy, overall, later, you know, later in her career and probably probably 
the probably the sort of the 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 most lasting version of judy garland we have and i guess she was kind of peak career in 54 i don't know again i'm not a big judy garland fan like that's what you're probably hearing but there's something i just find very resistible about her that's right folks i said resistible i kind of don't like the way she sings and i don't like the way she acts now i know she is a massive sort of gay icon and maybe it's because of that that sort of flawed brittle tragic femininity and her sort of earnestness and it's almost like her core her core sort of desperation is just bursting out at all times and when she sings it's like when she's singing in full voice it's almost like there's she's unable to really modulate and bring it back and I find I don't really hear the song I just feel like I'm getting beaten by the power of her broken soul and the her her voice and that vibrato and it's the same with her acting that if you watch her in uh, A Star Is Born it, there's not a lot of lightness there's not a lot of ease it's very it's just incredibly fraught and tense and you know it's barely contained emotion from start to finish and um yeah i i i find it hard i find it hard to watch as much as i find it fascinating and as much as i find her fascinating and there's certainly a moment in that montage in the middle of a star is a born where you see the young Liza Minnelli in her as well. And just for another connection with Judy, that was A Star Is Born is produced by Sidney Luft, who was her husband at the time. Um, Yeah, so there you go. So Judy, I mean, yeah, a a fascinating figure. I do find her really interesting. But uh, yeah, the, the... I found myself not really fully being able to invest in the 54 version and largely because of her and largely because of the overindulgence of the musical numbers. Um, And that central montage definitely steals a bit from um, Singing in the Rain and the, the, the movie within a movie of that, the, the famous, uh, the, the Broadway, what's it called? Is it the Broadway Melody? Is that what it's called? Where Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor, they're pitching their movie idea to the studio head and it's, it's Gene Kelly as the aspiring song and dance man hitting the big city and going door to door, you know, saying, give me a job, basically, gotta sing. And of course that leads to the, the amazing Sid Charisse Club dance number where Sid Charisse is the gangster's mall and her long leg has it's Gene Kelly's hat on the end of her toes isn't it (laughs) what a great sequence but I think the Judy Garland number in the middle of A Star Is Born steals from it although it has interesting things stylistically but anyway there you go so that then leads to the 76 version of A Star Is Born which I haven't watched and I, I, I'm not sure if I ever will um, Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson and that one is dis- distinctive 
also for having a Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn, Joan Didion's husband, uh, screenplay. So it sort of maybe elevates it. Now, for that reason alone, I'd probably want to watch it. But again, I find Barbara Streisand pretty hard to take as an actress. As much as her undeniable presence and power as a performer jumps at you, bursts off the screen. You know, I watched uh, I watched Funny Girl. Yes, Funny Girl last year. And Hello Dolly recently enough as well. Um, it's almost like she she's too much like the, the the screen can't quite contain her the the vehicle can't quite contain her and i i read one review which was just saying you know streisand is she's not acting to or with anyone <laughs> it's just she's acting it's it's all it's just the babs show and i can't stand that i just can't stand it um i think roger ebert in his review was saying um something you know something similar in fact it might have been him i'm quoting but he said like basically yeah couldn't take that but as soon as she sang everything else i forgot about everything else and just enjoyed her singing um and yeah of course streisand has that amazing voice and i'd certainly prefer to listen to her than judy garland at full belt although judy garland when she's kind of singing a bit more laid back and a bit more chilled i think is quite lovely the um so that version, The Star is Born, the main change there was they moved the story setting to the world of rock and roll uh, rather than the world of Hollywood and movies. And yeah, that shift then was one that in Bradley Cooper's version, which he wrote and directed as well as acted in, he kept, he stayed in that milieu of kind of rock and roll, the rock star. And of course, Chris Christopherson was uh, a musician and, you know, a sometime actor, you know, seen in Heaven's Gate, amongst other things. And I've always quite liked him as an actor, to be honest, which he's always had some sort of, you know, sort of a an easy kind of masculinity. Um, bit beefy, bit country, bit laid back kind of cool um and again i haven't watched the 76 version so i i I can't really say much else about it so by the time you get then to the bradley cooper lady gaga version you have about nine credited writers from all the different versions because they're all kind of drawing on the previous uh iteration of the story um but a for me like a key shift by the time you get to the the 2018 or the 2019 version whatever it was is we get to see um we get to see the lady gaga uh lady we get to see lady gaga playing that character who i can't remember the character's name it's certainly not esther blodgett i'm just gonna i'm just gonna quickly look it up here because that's a bit of a bit of a lapse there um but what we see is Lady Gaga playing this really believably strong female character, like a very credibly ballsy, um, 
strong character. Oh, Ali, that's her name. Yeah, Ali. I can't remember if we get her surname in the story. But what I, what you feel, what I took when I you watch that romance unfold um, in their version is Bradley Cooper and she, they meet as, they sort of meet as equals. Like he's not being coy about his status, but he is, a mess like he is really in the you know the, the grip of terrible sort of addiction and he just stumbles into this bar um and sees her on stage performing la vie en rose uh the you know the famous kind of edith piaf song and of course louis armstrong has a beautiful version as well well i really like that version and she's doing that going full tilt but singing it really well and you know she just I just, I just i she was a revelation to me I, I was never particularly interested in her before watching the movie but i just thought she acted so well um and clearly revealed her musical talents as well but they meet in the movie and it's sort of a meeting of you know he certainly is meeting her trying to meet her as you know an equal and just going yeah you've got something you're amazing let's talk i like your face i like your nose and they get into they get into a there's a fight at another at a bar I can't remember it's not the first bar they go to they end up in another bar and there's cops there it's like it's like a policeman's bar I guess and they start sort of hassling him you know being very enthusiastic fans and she's just like you know leave him alone and he just wants to chill and have a drink and then she punches one of the cops and of course that leads then to them going to a supermarket he gets peas to put on her bruised hand and that's when she sort of on the spot composes a few lines of a song just looking at him and there's a flash of recognition where he's going well you know you're you're a songwriter and it's not even it's not even about the fact that she's a songwriter it's just it's recognition and i would say that is that is one of the things that makes us fall in love you know it's that it's that flash that spark of recognition it's not just desire sexual attraction lust whatever i think the real emotional explosion and the real emotional uh magnetism and that ex- yeah explosive chemistry of falling in love with someone it is a deep instant compelling recognition of oh yeah i see you you see me we're seeing each other in this moment and i think that is the that's the doorway that's the doorway that you you jump through together or that's the window that you jump through together and you know let the chips fall where they may let the damage be what it will be because it's almost an unstoppable force at that moment and i feel like that when i look at that movie i go yeah that's that's real it's tangible i believe it and you know with any movie that's the success if you believed you believe these characters are going to take you on a journey that you want to go on and um, ultimately the movie follows the same story again he's the the big star 
who's on the way down, uh, really in free fall and cannot stop himself. And he does, I don't want to say his fall facilitates her rise. I mean, that's the, that's the kind of the Greek tragedy aspect, um, which takes us back to the 1937 version. Your success will come at great cost. Your success will come at the cost of a broken heart. I mean, that's almost like the way the grandmother put it to Janet Gaynor in the 37 version. It's almost like a Faustian pact. You know, the devil will come. The devil will come to uh, to collect his due. Now, she didn't use that phrase, but that's that's the Faustian deal. You know, let me sign my soul away. Um, so in the Bradley Cooper version, and this is what my cousin and I were discussing there is sort of a there's an argument that she sells out that the path to success takes her away from her original sort of songwriter credentials um and she's pushed more into pop and the pop mainstream and that's definitely a point of departure in the relationship between she and and bradley cooper but she's a far more assertive character and interestingly in that movie her father is played by Andrew Dice Clay and he played really well and terribly sort of affectionately and warmly by Andrew Dice Clay who back in 1990 I remember he was this kind of shock comedian who was really sort of crass and had a very particular brand of kind of sexist delivery um, which didn't appeal to me at all so he was a kind of, a, again, he was a revelation to me in A Star Is Born, just playing this very um, kind of dopely, affectionate, funny, um, but very kind of genuine dad, kind of a minding, protective, but, you know, a, a dad that was able to be challenged by this tough, strong daughter, adult daughter. Um, so I think, I, I, I looked at that and went, okay, so her, her strength and her sense of agency like the, the dad hasn't kind of stood in her way and that assertiveness and agency is something that's not really present in the earlier incarnations of the story and in the end the end of a star is born it's not there's not a publicity agent but her manager is a very very slick a very slick polished controlled and I'm going to use the word Machiavellian, <laughs> you know, a mover, who in really one of the key scenes in the movie, he very deftly manipulates Bradley Cooper, uh, Bradley Cooper's character uh, in this one named Jackson Maine. He manipulates him into a very vulnerable state and you can just see the lights going off in the Bradley Cooper character after he's worked so hard to recover himself after he's worked so hard to make up for his terrible behavior um the the nadir the low point of which is when he he is at a grammy ceremony where ali the wife is being celebrated and he goes up on stage with her he's really drunk and he pisses himself and it's yeah it's really uncomfortable to watch it's you know terribly yeah awkward and awful but he gets himself together and there's this kind of tentative reconciliation towards the end of the movie and 
Ali, the Lady Gaga character, saying, OK, I'm going to cancel my tour. We're going to stay here. We're going to just be well and hang out together and build on this. And she leaves and then the manager steps in and kind of goes, you just need to get the hell out of her life. You're no good. You're going to bring her down. You're not, you know, and he's not even being as brutal as that. It's much more subtle and slippery and all the more manipulative and conniving and evil because of it. And sure enough, poor old Bradley, um, Jackson, Maine, he he hangs himself in his garage and yeah it's just brutal it is brutal and Bradley Cooper I just think captures the anguish and the pain and the self-loathing and the the sort of the helplessness the helplessness to escape his demons and you know the journey the journey that he goes on to pull himself out of the abyss to just drag himself up to the edge and onto safe ground that journey is so tough and I find in the movie so believable and painful and emotional and moving and then the fall back in is so easy and I guess in a way I you know I believe not being an addict myself not being an alcoholic that seems to be my perception that the fall back is so easy and that's what makes it so terrifying that's what makes the achievement of recovery, the balancing act of recovery, I think, so laudable, so admirable, so, yeah, so courageous. Um, and I just think it comes. It's, it's, I just don't, I don't believe that's an easy thing. I believe it comes at great cost. And, you know, I, I live in a country where the consumption of alcohol and the place of alcohol is really central to the Irish identity and Irish culture. And I think it's celebrated disproportionately. Um, I think it's celebrated to ridiculous degrees. I think there's a great place for it. I think the Irish have, culturally, we have a great ability to relax in the best way, a great ability to switch off and, you know, to, to, to celebrate and to come together and that I think is a, it's a tremendous cultural aspect that we do have, and it's 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 a beautiful part of what you can enjoy uh, here, and what a lot of Irish people enjoy, um, you know, individually, socially, whatever. But there is a dark side to that, where you know, alcohol is just seen as this. It's all you know. It's almost like a a false god. And it's almost like it's it's almost it's almost taboo to to criticize it and to be critical of that aspect of our culture. Um, and indeed, uh, with the with the lockdown, um, of course, there's been a lot of a lot of discourse around the closure of pubs and the inability to go out and drink and the inability to get a, a freshly poured pint. And as the restrictions eased, there was much celebration on social media by all sorts, everyone going, can't wait for the first pint and putting up photos of pints and drinks and this is going to be beautiful and I've got three more coming and whatever. But a, a friend of, or an acquaintance of my wife's, a very, a really gifted musician, he, uh, he just put up a response kind of going, lads, would you just give us a break? You know, I'm a recovering alcoholic and have been for many years and I just don't need to see this and a lot of recovering alcoholics do not need to see this 
give it a rest it's you know i'm gonna go mad if i see another bloody pint of guinness put up on social media as this you know miraculous thing and you know it was quite passionate and i just felt yeah i I had i just felt yeah fair play to you you know because you're not really allowed to come out and say that people don't want you to be a party pooper they don't want you to you know to 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 throw shade on their luxuriant indulgence and celebration of the old drink um and then he'll get dismissed as being ah for god's sake sure you know come on we're only having a laugh but i think it's a very real thing and i i thought i really was like yeah brilliant well done man well done for saying what you have to say and you know for sharing your anger and your frustration and owning your addiction and owning your demons and yeah that was the connection of drawing is in a star is born you have in those four five movie versions i've mentioned so what price hollywood and then the four other versions of a star is born all having that same name you've got the male character alcoholism the inability to escape demons uh the in the inability to let and this is key the inability to let love save you yeah they all end in suicide they all end in feelings of abject defeat and failure and just being beyond reach and partially and it, you know it, it's 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 very clear in the movies it's a it's also a decision that I will get myself out of the way. I will remove myself from this scene, remove myself from the picture, remove myself from life. So this woman I love can survive and thrive because I believe I'm going to take her down with me. Now, that is, in my opinion, a false belief in the context of the movies that I'm talking about, in the context of this story that I'm talking about and its various iterations. However, I know from my own experience of depression, you do come to that conclusion. I've certainly been in that headspace and indulging suicidal ideation. Uh, and in fact, I'm going to roll back. I'm not going to say indulging. It just is what it is. That is just an aspect of how I've experienced depression. I know that's common. It's not unusual. I'm going to stay here for the record. I've never tried to kill myself. And I have what I would call a good relationship with my occasional bouts of depression with that impulse and that tendency to react uh, and respond to certain things in my life um you know i look at it i own it and i accept it as my response and i've learned how to not double down on it i've learned how to not compound it by judging it i have become very good at identifying things that trigger that response and looking at them frankly and understanding why it might be a painful thing for myself and grand i mean maybe i can go into that on another on on another episode but i think that's what resonates for me when i look at the at a star is born and the you know the various versions of the of the movie and you see just that i just find it terribly sad when you're looking at these characters the Norman Maine, Jackson Maine character, and that that is the ultimate choice. And what's left behind is a heartbroken, heartbroken woman and, a, and heartbroken loved ones 
in the Bradley Cooper Lady Gaga version you've got you know Lady Gaga her character Ali heartbroken and Sam Elliott in a beautifully beautifully judged performance as Bradley Cooper's brother just this wonderful controlled incredibly pained um you know that just that repressed emotion he just does it so well um as the as the loving but sort of shat upon over older brother and um yeah really 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 good but i suppose where i wanted to get to by the end of this and we're coming to the end and I haven't left myself enough time to really treat of it. But the idea of the idea of being unable to escape trauma, the idea of being unable to escape the demons. And it's I just think that's I just think it's a real thing. And I've had to sort of come to terms with that myself and go, okay. You know, not everyone finds a way out. Not everyone finds a way back or not everyone finds a way onwards. And how I've been thinking about it, the inability to move on, it's like you're on your life journey. And if we think of that as a very linear journey, and, you know, I, I'm not saying that that's right or wrong. That is how I tend to think of life. It's it's very chronological, linear, forward movement it's about the clock ticking. It's about the advance of time. It's about your onward progress through life, regardless of what happens. But that inability to move on means at a certain point you're saying, I cannot continue. And it's like you're saying to the other people in your life, go on without me. I can't go any further. You know, it's like you're the, you're like, it's like you're the wounded soldier, uh, regardless of gender, male, female, whatever. You know, you're... You're stuck at a certain point and your injuries, your wounds, your trauma will not let you walk on, will not let you carry on. And of course, if we stay with this analogy of the soldiers, I suppose it's then when you have to put your hand up and say, please carry me. And that can be a big deal. But that is really what we all have to do when we if we have the, if we have sufficient insight and sufficient courage to put our hand up and say I need help and it's not even that because there's a step that has to happen before that and that's the step of I want to continue I want to carry on I want to advance progress I want to keep living and that is the real tragedy of suicide where someone believes no there's nothing left here and there's a beautiful Lucinda Williams song called Sweet Old World and she asks the question you know did you I can't I'm gonna I'm gonna misquote it of course but it's did you really believe you weren't worth anything did you really believe no nobody loved you and that, I think, really gets to the heart of the desperate self-talk that somebody in that state is in and how in that state we can believe that the world is better off without us. Um, I 
really don't think that's ever going to be the case um, because you always even if you think you're messed up you've always touched people in positive ways you've all you're always enormously important and meaningful to to other people and it's just that's the kind that's the that's the tragedy of self-hate and damage that we don't believe that to be true that we recognize it maybe rationally but we don't feel it emotionally that in that kind of deep part of ourselves we reject that idea and that ultimately can lead us to terribly self-destructive behavior which is um yeah which is just really sad it's just a a very sad aspect of what many of us many people go through um so there you go look um i've i've gone on i I, i'm gonna stay get away from the trauma not to end on such a sort of a sad kind of bleak note and i just wanted to return to a couple of things from those movies i've been talking about and the one point is the self-referential thing it's fascinating to me that in the 1937 version in which there is a scene where Esther Blodgett, now Vicky Lester, played by Janet Gaynor, is accepting an Academy Award. And that movie was shot in 1936, the second half of 1936. The Oscars, the Academy Awards, at that stage in 1936, were only seven years old. The first ever ceremony was in 1929. So again i'm just pointing that out to go that's how self-referential they were and the you know it's to also to point out how hollywood for years you know the, the movies made in hollywood have always been about telling their own story and they've always been about building and telling and creating and uh propagandizing the american myth <laughs> and the american dream um the you know anyone can be anything the the you know the streets are paved with gold and they started that very early on and also amazing and i'm just hitting you with a bit of just the movie trivia here janet gaynor like a lot of the early uh hollywood actors and actresses who made it into you know the first kind of talkies when they had sound a lot of them had come through the silent movie era first and janet gaynor was in fw murnau's sunrise which is considered you know, one of the all-time great silent movies. Uh, amazing uh, storytelling and amazing photography and use of light. And she was the the heroine of that movie um, from, I guess, from the 1920s. I'd have to go back and check the date on that. So that was pretty interesting. Now, final thing, final thing. So I'm going to go back to the sexism and the objectification of the Esther Blodgett character, particularly in the 1937 and the 1954 version. So Janet Gaynor and Judy Garland, both being just totally objectified and, you know, trying to, you know, put through the, the, the process of the Hollywood machine, as well as being reduced to that traditional feminine role, the stalwart, the dependable wife, standing faithfully by the the husband who can do whatever the hell he wants um i'm not going to go into a big treatise on that right now but just going to draw a little connection to a brilliant story i came across yesterday about a northern irish scientist is she a scientist is that what i can call her so this woman who 
1967. In 1967, um, discovered pulsars. I think that's what they're called. So this woman's name is Jocelyn Bell Burnell. And in 1967, when she was, I think, 22 or 23, she, I think at that time, was a Cambridge student. And she was part of a, uh, let me see, a science research project with radio signals a radio telescope not an optic telescope studying the stars she's an astronomer christ i couldn't think of what the hell she was <laughs> an astronomer so studying space and the stars and she basically identified in the research an irregularity and what she was discovering and this is i'm absolutely so out of my depth here she discovered what, what are called pulsars which are basically stars at the end of their lives, which are radiating an intermittent but regular light, or well, a radio signal that we would interpret as light. So it's like a pulse. So it spins around, buh, buh, buh. And every one of those buh, <laughs> buzz, is a flash of light. Now she described it as like a light in your eye, and it goes and it comes back and it's in your eye again. She identified the irregularity. She understood i think she, she she understood that this was something very significant it was dismissed originally as interference by her superiors uh men of course and then they she found it again and she found a, a different way of interpreting the data so it was more visible on their charts as a a more distinctive uh, irregularity on the graph and then it was taken seriously for the first time and it turned out to be a massive scientific discovery, which she was shut out of. She was just seen as this girly student who happened to be there when these men made this amazing discovery. Uh, the, the the scientist or astronomer who got the credit was a man called Tony Hewlish, Anthony Hewlish. And would you believe he was given the Nobel Prize for this extraordinary achievement? And she jocelyn bell was um relating how at the time of the you know the you know the, the the media attention given to this discovery they talked to the men about the science and the the technology and the equipment and what it meant and its greater significance and then they turned to her and asked her about what boyfriends she had and uh, they'd ask her get this they'd ask her for her measurements you know her her bust and her her hips and her waist. Is that how it goes? <laughs> I never know those three measurements. So I'm always like, what are they measuring? Bust, bum, hips. You're just going, ah, oh, lads. I mean, where were we? And anyway, remarkably, she's incredibly good humoured about it. Subsequently, many years later, she was honoured, not with a Nobel Prize, but with... Uh, Again, it's, it was, it's a new prize was founded to go, we need to acknowledge people who made amazing contributions to science. And I think it was dubbed like the, the Oscars of science. And she was finally honoured. And so I guess she's in her late 70s now. And if you want to find this out, there is a wonderful short film, a documentary film. It's only 15 minutes long. And it's on the New York Times website. My uncle sent it to me in an email. And then I bopped it on to some other people. And my cousin, another cousin of mine who 
is a bit of a keen astronomer herself and has studied it. She was very familiar with her and said, yep, she's one of my all-time heroes. So um, there you go. I think that's a good note to finish on. A triumphant, brilliant, intelligent, proud woman. And why wouldn't she be from Northern Ireland? So, yeah, you need to go and check her out. The, um, The formidable and jolly, not at all bitter, I mean that seriously, Jocelyn Bell Burnell. Didn't she do well? Is that a patronising thing to say? She would eat me for breakfast. Um, any <laughs> in, in any competition of science or maths, I'm a goner. Okay, I have dragged on and I'm sorry. Uh, and I, I went very long on the movies. I didn't go as long as I wanted on trauma and recovering from it, but I will return to this subject again. One of my favourites. I'm so jolly. Jolly, jolly me. So there you go. Lots of stuff there. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoy the podcast and want to spread the word, don't hesitate. Bump it to somebody who you think might enjoy it. Stick it up on social media. Uh, Support it if you want financially by contributing via the supporter link, which should be there with the other information about the podcast or at patreon.com forward slash the clear out. Okay, mind yourselves, okay? Take care, stay positive, stay strong, and don't ever believe, don't ever believe for a second that there isn't someone out there who cares about you, who cares about your well-being, and in your darker moments, that they wouldn't be very happy to help you, give you a sympathetic ear, lend you a hand in whatever way they could you're cared for, you're loved, you mean something. So there you go. Take care of yourself, value yourself, love yourself. All the best. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. See you.